Welcome to the Retirement Risk Show, the best retirement interviews and advice with Dave Hall. Learn strategies to help you reduce and even eliminate the risks facing your retirement. Hello, welcome to the show. My name is Dave Hall. I am your host, and here we are again back talking about your retirement. If you would like to learn more about what me and my team can do to help you get to a safe and secure retirement, go to my website, retirementriskadvisors.com. Here you will get access to all the tools and resources that we have to help you navigate the various risks that you will face in retirement because they are substantially different than many of the risks that you have gone through during your working years. If you've tried to accumulate wealth, it's a much different experience than when you're going through the distribution phase and trying to distribute that wealth out. Today, we are going to be talking about one of the top 10 financial risks facing your retirement, and that is Medicare. We do teach a one and a half hour deep dive course on Medicare and long-term care. Go to our events page on our website if you'd like to learn more about when the next course is being taught. But I thought it would be interesting today to talk more about the financial stability of the program, talk about some recommendations that have been put out there to try to get it back on track. Many times we talk about Social Security and its problems coming in somewhere around 2033, 2035, that's when we expect the trust fund to run out of money for Social Security. But oftentimes what's not talked about is Medicare and the fact that it is having financial issues as well. In fact, they're going to come about much quicker than Social Security, going to happen somewhere closer to 2028, 2030 going to be anywhere from three to five years faster than when we see Social Security trust fund run out of money. Well, why is this such a problem? Because both of these programs provide substantial benefits for retirees. They're very important to the overall health and finance of retirees. Social Security providing a monthly income stream, Medicare providing a low-cost insurance program to allow retirees to get the health benefits that they need. Today, I'm going to be taking the bulk of the show from an article that was put together on the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget website. This is run by Maya McGinnis. Uh, I've quoted her many times in our podcast. Haven't yet had the opportunity to interview her, but she's done a number of articles out there to really help us better understand the financial situation we find ourselves in across America. It's not just dealing with retirement programs, but with all other aspects of the federal budget. The organization was put together back in 1981 as a way to help be a guide to govern what is going on in Washington, to be a third-party, nonpartisan voice, to be able to share ideas and to give feedback on what is going on in the government to allow people to better know and be informed about the fiscal status of the U.S. Today, we are going to cover five things that are revenue generating for Medicare, things that have been proposed. Now, understand none of these have been accepted. Nothing has been put into law, but we will be talking about five proposed revenue generators. And then we're going to talk about five items that are cost reducers. So we'll talk about some other recommendations to help bring those costs down that seem to be continually going up much faster. In fact, they are going up much faster than inflation. Healthcare is going to continue to be an issue, not only for retirees, but for American families as we look out over the next uh, two, three, four, maybe five decades to the future. What are these items that they're proposing from a revenue generation standpoint? First of these is to increase the payroll tax rate that is currently being paid into Medicare from 2.9%. If you're a lower income earner, it's 38 if you're a higher income earner, but it's uh, going to 
increase, they're proposing to increase that by 0.5% to increase the taxes by a half a percentage point. What they expect is this is going to bring in a substantial amount of additional revenue, even though it's not a large adjustment because of the percentage adjustment to the 2.9% we already have. They expect this to be a big part of how we will get this balanced and get the trust fund back on track where Medicare can continue. Second one of these is to broaden the Medicare payroll tax base to cover employees' health care benefits. If you understand the current laws, you realize that if you have employer-based health care benefits, those get deducted out before you pay your Medicare taxes on your payroll. It's an item that you're not paying the additional taxes on. They're recommending that this gets removed, that you now start paying taxes on those healthcare benefits uh, for Medicare purposes and expecting that also to have a substantial increase because so many employers currently provide benefits that are not getting taxed to the employees that are receiving them. Number three is to expand the base for the net investment income tax. This is for those individuals that have net investment income. If you're single above 200,000, if you're a married couple above $250,000 to extend that out to where they would lower those amounts. So more people would be subject to this. I would not increase the the amounts that would lower them down maybe to a hundred and a hundred and fifty thousand. They've not given any guidelines here, but to make it to where more people would be required to pay this net investment tax. And the purpose of these funds would be to go into the Medicare trust fund to help better stabilize what's going on there. Number four, apply the payroll tax to business income for self-employed workers to reduce the avoidance. Now understand if you have net self-employment income, you are going to pay some Medicare tax as part of your self-employment taxes. You'll have social security taxes paid in, Medicare taxes paid in. The challenge is because there are so many business expenses for many of these self-employed individuals, by the time they get down to the amount that's being taxed, it is substantially less than what an individual would be paying if they had a regular W-2 job. So what they are proposing here is to allow a higher base to be used for those self-employed individuals. So they would be required, regardless of profitability of the company, they would be required to pay an additional amount in higher than what they're currently paying in as another method to help balance the budget here. We don't know what that amount would be. We don't know what the guidelines would be as far as the income levels, what that would look like to make a fair allocation, but there is a lot of discussion that those who have businesses maintain very similar lifestyle to those who have a W-2 job, but yet their tax burden is awfully substantially less because the various deductions are able to deduct. And the last one here, number five, is to impose an excise tax on sugar-sweetened beverages. This is a 3% allocation that, there, that is being proposed on a 12-ounce drink. So based upon a 12 ounce drink, if you were to go out and buy a soda, any type, whatever that brand name is, and it's deemed to be a sugar beverage, let's say that it costs you a dollar for that 12 ounce can, 3% charge would be added to that that would go into Medicare. Now, this was going to be interesting for them to try to monitor because typically Medicare is a payroll tax item, not a sales tax item to where now different forms would have to be filed. Every company that is selling these products or the vendor who would be selling these probably is where they would gather the funds is from the vendor, not the retail store, but it would obviously increase the cost of what would be paid across the country for these types of drinks. And the goal of that is, is to try to reduce the usage of sugary drinks, realizing that they can lead to a lot of health problems, diabetes, obesity, other things that are causing and adding to the additional costs that we have out there to try to maintain our seniors as they age and start 
start dealing with the impacts of some of these. So those are the five proposals that are coming from the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Understand none of those have been implemented. We don't know if any of them will be implemented. They're just strategies that they're proposing in hopes of helping people better understand that there can be solutions put in place. But if they, uh, as they happen, they are going to cost somebody something and maybe all of us something as we go through that process because this program that we call Medicare is far too important to the overall economic health of our country and to making sure retirees are able to maintain st steady lifestyles in retirement that we do expect adjustments to be made. We talk about it on this show all the time, the importance of tax rate risk and the fact that taxes will be higher in the future than they are today. Many times people will look at that only as an income tax item, that they're going to have to increase our income tax rates. But what we're seeing is not only are they continuing to increase the Medicare rates, which have already been done a couple of times. Remember, we had the net investment income tax that got added that wasn't there before that increased the amount of money going into Medicare. And we also had the additional Medicare tax that's charged to the higher income earners that's being paid, the 0.9% additional tax that's being paid there. So it's not something that's never happened before. What we're going to see is additional taxes to be required to fix this. On the Social Security end, we expect the same thing to happen for there to be additional taxes to help cover the cost of Social Security and making sure that it stays viable as a government program as well as we look to the near future. Let's now talk about the five health saving initiatives that are being proposed. The first one of these is to reduce Medicare Advantage overpayments. So if you understand how the Medicare Advantage plans work, what happens is an insurance company is basically consolidating all of the services for you, including what Medicare would typically provide. So you do have to pay your Part B premium. If you are signed up for a Medicare Advantage plan, typically you'd be getting Part A for free, but the insurance company would facilitate all of that and the government will give them a stipend based upon the number of lives that they're insuring. So if you sign up and 100 of your friends uh, sign up as well with an insurance company, that company is going to get 101 payments from the federal government based upon the, the lives of you and your friends that are going to be oversaw by this health, individual health insurance company. Well, the problems that's happening here is many times these payments are far more than what you are incurring as costs through the insurance company. And there's no real incentive to to make it better because the insurance companies are getting the extra money. They love the fact that they're getting the extra funds. We do see at times even that you may get a zero cost Medicare Advantage plan because of this. But what they're proposing is that there be some type of accountability to award initiative, to award people that are trying to cut costs rather than just continue to pay excess money to these insurance companies to allow them to moderate and handle what Medicare typically would do. Number two would be to equalize Medicare payments regardless of site of care. This is something I do a lot of work with various physicians across the country, uh, various hospitals. This is one that's become a bigger and bigger issue. And what they're talking about here, saying that if you were to go get treatment done at a different type of facility, it could cost you substantially more at one facility than another. So let's say that you've got something that could be done in your doctor's office. If they were to bill Medicare for this service, it could be substantially less than if you were to go into a surgical center, which may be substantially less than if you were to go into a hospital. So if you you look at it from a doctor or a hospital standpoint, what they're trying to do is to push you into the most expensive area where they can get the most money from Medicare for the services that are being performed. What they're proposing here from the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget is coming back and saying, no, you should be getting paid the exact same amount regardless of where that care took place. If it could be 
done in an office of a doctor, there's no reason that we should be paying any more to put someone into the outpatient facility at a hospital or into a surgical center than doing paying for the cost that we would pay there at a doctor's office. So this is something that we do expect to see more and more discussion on. It obviously is something that's going to be a bigger and bigger problem as we look at consolidation. Some of the things that are going on there because many of these doctors and hospital groups are consolidating with the main purpose of trying to get those maybe the office patients into a hospital setting because they realize if they buy a doctor's office that is used to only getting X amount of dollars for the types of care that they're providing, and now they can put them into a hospital setting where the insurance company now gets Y dollars, that becomes a very profitable venture on all sides for the insurance companies, but at the cost of Medicare and government spending, as well as for those of us who are consumers out there. And again, that could be on a, not necessarily the insurance side itself, but could also be the hospital organizations themselves trying to buy these various uh, companies that are out there. Number three is to capping hospital prices. This is something that I've dealt with for decades. I was a CFO for a neonatal group years ago. They were one of the largest pediatric groups in the country. They were being sold to a, a much larger national company. I was their CFO for a couple of years as we went through the transition. And one of the things I noticed is we had a hospital in California where our bill charges were over 10 times what Medicare was going to pay on those charges. So if you were to go in there as a cash patient, they may be charging you $1,000 for the services that you were going to get, and you would be responsible to pay for that. But if you happen to have Medicare or be in a position where Medicare was going to pay for you, you would end up with an eight, uh, maybe even a, an 8% charge, less than 10% of that, where you're paying 80 bucks for that $1,000 fee. What they're looking at here is saying, somewhere this has got to come to an end. We can't have these doctors and hospitals charging three and four times more, knowing that they may be getting a percentage of that fee in Medicare. So as a result, they'll charge substantially more. If you're getting an 8% of bill charges, well, why not charge 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000? The more I charge for that, the higher reimbursement I'm gonna get from Medicare rather than putting it at a set price and then being able to have Medicare pay those prices across the board. So a lot of discussion out there to try to solve this issue. Now understand that it's a big headwind when we look at it because so many companies out there, so many of these hospital groups are liking the profitability that's coming out of the way they currently do business. Although it's hurting us as Americans, it's hurting our country as a whole, individually for those companies can, can be very rewarding for them to be able to consolidate, be able to increase those charges, get a higher percentage of Medicare at the cost of our premiums all going up because of that. Number four, injecting price competition into Medicare Part B drugs. This is something else that there's been a lot of discussion with. We do have the federal government as part of Secure Act 2.0, where they're starting to look at a lot of these prescription drugs and try to figure out how they can get these prices down. But we do need to have a much better environment where we can have competition in the, these drug arenas. What the problem is, is many of the main drugs that we use are governed by one or two companies. So it allows them to, to not necessarily get together because legally they can't do that, but to really govern how that price is going to be set individually, knowing that the competition is not so big that it's going to cause problems with the pricing they're offering. So if you're offering something at $90 and you know your competitor is still going to offer it at 70, 80 or 90, whatever the case may be, and that's the only place they can get it, it's going to incentivize you to keep those prices up rather than bringing them down where we would could 
be more affordable and where they really should be. And we've seen many stories on, on Dateline or some of these other news organizations where they've come in and they've looked at what's going on out there in the medical arena. And what they're finding is that there are individuals that are buying prescription drugs that they know they can jack the price up on because people have to have them and they're going to get those payments. One of the big ones, if you remember, was the EpiPen, period of time that that got outrageously expensive to be able to get access to those if you were someone who needed them. And the last one here is limiting evergreening for name brand prescription drugs. What they're talking about here is most prescription drugs when they come out have a period of time where a knockoff or a generic drug would not be able to be brought to market. And so as a result, they're able to recapture their marketing and develop research and development costs, all of these things to be able to charge a higher price for that product. Well, there is an end to that period of time where you would typically have generic drugs or other companies be able to come to market to reduce that price down. And if you've ever looked at name brand drugs compared to generics, many times they can be a tenth of the cost as well. It can be a huge savings. Well, what's happening is many of these companies are finding ways to extend out that protection period. So they're not ending at the normal protection period they should have where the generics could come to market. They're able to extend it out. And that can be done in various ways from buying another company that would be producing the generic drug and then just taking it off the market to uh, enacting laws and putting things in place to allow them to have more protection to charge those higher prices for a longer period of time. Today, we've covered a lot of information, a lot of things to, to look at here. These are not the only solutions, obviously, that are out there, and many of these probably will not get enacted. We'll have other solutions that will be brought about to help solve some of these issues. I think the real takeaway, though, for all of us is that we need to remember this is our lives. This is us. Medicare is going to impact each one of us, and if we want it to be successful for future generations, we are going to have to pay some additional costs. Now, it's much better if we are paying paying additional costs and knowing that that money's being used effectively, that people are doing cost-cutting, putting together cost-cutting incentives to get us back where we need to be. But regardless, it is going to be a point as we go over the next few years to where we are all going to be looking at probably higher taxes to be able to cover this, as well as hopefully some inner management that will allow the Medicare and those companies who are related to it through insurance companies, hospitals, whatever the case may be, to allow them to come together to help cut some of these costs to make that tax burden not be so difficult for many families who are already struggling to get through life with the taxes they're currently paying. My name's Dave Hall. I've been your host. You know, if you do have questions about Medicare, as I mentioned in the beginning, please go to our website, retirementriskadvisor.com. Go to our events page. Here you'll be able to get access to our upcoming webinar on Medicare and long-term care. It's a one and a half hour event. We'll teach this on about a monthly basis. So if you miss the one that's coming up, look forward to one in the future. If you do not see anything there, reach out to our office. Make sure that you get on the schedule. I look forward to seeing each of you back here again next week where we will talk about solutions to help you better solve those risks facing your retirement. Hey, if you liked what you heard and you want more retirement risk education or you're interested in signing up for any of our many retirement-focused webinars, make sure you check out our website at retirementriskadvisors.com. We have a lot of great resources, tools, and information on retirement available to you right at your fingertips. And if you're on social media, you can find us at Retirement Risk Advisors on Instagram and Facebook. This brings us to the end of another episode of the Retirement Risk Show with our host and retirement risk expert, Dave Hall. We here at RRA don't just get you to retirement, we get you safely through retirement. Thanks again for listening, and we will be back with you again soon. <laughs>